the last church I served at was really small and it had an 8 o'clock service and the members of the 8 o'clock service had been attending that service um, as our Bishop Mark would say since God was a child and I for my first six months there you know this happens at a new job I was really zealous and I'd get up and I'd go throw open the front doors at 7:30, and then you know I would prepare and the the old timers the eight o'clockers were always sitting in the parish hall having they'd have coffee and Danish this um, before service and hang out afterwards but they were catching up with each other it was just their habit to sit and hang out so the first six first six or so months I'd go throw open the doors and then come back and find out what's going on and then I just turned into one of them <laughs> Which means I just, I lived right next door, so I, you know, like I'd get out of the shower and walk in and come and sit down and just have my coffee. And then we were finished having our coffee chat, I'd go and I'd open the door. And um, sometimes that would happen at five of eight, but then, you know, like a year in, then it would start happening at eight. And then once in a while at 8.05 or something like that. It wasn't usually longer than 8.10. But I'd open the door eventually. You just didn't have to open it because we came. But you know, everybody knows you just come through the gym and grab coffee because that's who's there. So anyway, I get an email one Monday from this guy who, who dear, who's the, and the email said something to the effect of, dear Reverend Worm, and I always know that's bad news. When somebody calls me Reverend Worm, I'm like, ooh. And um, he's, you know, I came to church at 8 o'clock. My understanding was that you have services at that hour. Could you tell me the right time to show up for worship? And I just felt awful, and I called him, and I apologized, and I had lunch with him. And he turned out to be a person in my life that just absolutely brought me closer to Jesus and breathed new life on this congregation. And I've, I've preached about him before. He was pretty much dead when he showed up. He lived next to the cemetery, and he was, you know, he was disenfranchised from his family, and he was just, he was not having a happy life. And then one morning, he decided to go and do something new. And he knocked on the church door, and it was locked, right? And I, I was thinking about this story last Thursday, not this one, two Thursdays ago when it was Maundy Thursday and we had our Passover Seder. And there's that wonderful part of the Seder at, towards the very end where you go have a child open the door to invite Elijah in. And I've thought about that as, you know, for in, a, in a bunch of ways. I think, oh, it's a wonderful tradition that connects us from one generation to the other, and it's a wonderful way to honor Elijah and to keep the, you know, his, his presence alive in our memory. But then I thought about it, the other thing about opening the door, it's just like that door I didn't open when I was at my last church at eight o'clock. The reason I didn't open the door was that I didn't expect anything new to happen, right? And the opening of the door is standing, part of being a person of faith, is believing that God is going to do something new and being militant about that, having that as a stance of faith. I believe God is, that is why you open the door. And it's why you, I bet you, it's why you open the door at the Passover meal. And also, I think that it's so important to this gospel reading because we, it's been 2,000 years, we have this beautiful church, our Easter morning is always victory, and we're so excited and happy because Jesus is risen, and we have lots of fun 
at Grace in particular, I think. And so we're very excited. But this story that I just read from John brings us to the real Easter. And the real Easter is a little group of scared disciples cowering behind a locked door, believing that there is absolutely no hope that God is about to do anything new because Jesus is dead. And so hope, their hope has died with him, them. And so they have a locked door because they live in a world filled with fear and dead ends and despair. And right into the middle of this, Jesus suddenly appears. And sometimes John will go on at great length and put all kinds of... Um, folderall and decorations around a story he tells and make it very detailed. He does it with the woman um, that, that washes Jesus' feet um, and he does it with the raising of Lazarus. There's all these wonderful details, but in this story Jesus just suddenly shows up. He says once he's, he's not there and suddenly he's there and there's no explanation given. How did that happen? Did he just like walk through the door? Did, was there a beam of light and he was suddenly there? How did it happen? And I love that we're not given any explanation because if you're a person who's had Jesus just suddenly show up in the middle of your anxiety and despair, you know that's exactly what happens. Ask somebody, ask somebody who's had the presence of Christ come into their moment of hopelessness in the form of another person or something that happens, they won't be able to tell you. He just was there. That's the witness. He just suddenly is there. And he says to them, the thing that he says first is the thing that you're going to say after I stop preaching. After we've, we've um, we, he says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. That's why we say the peace. But I think it also speaks to what I was telling you about in the middle of your despair or anxiety or you're reading the paper and it's depressing you, right in the middle of that feeling of grief or hopelessness or resignation, that the world is always going to be the same. Jesus just suddenly appears and says, peace. He brings them peace. And basically, he's, call, he's preparing them, he's forming them to go out and be his disciples. And the first thing he says is right in the middle of that closed-off world where you've drawn the shade, he shows up and says, you as my people are a people of peace. And then he does something really wild. He shows them his wounds. I want you to think about any other superhero. Think about Superman. He's my favorite. What other here? Superman, think about the, maybe you're old enough to have watched reruns. He bends steel with his bare hands and he's faster than a locomotive and stronger than a, you know, like faster than a speeding bullet and he's all these things. When Superman comes up against an enemy and like a bad guy shoots at Superman, what happens? He doesn't get wounded. Right? The way you know a superhero is that they're stronger and smarter and faster and overall better than you. And Jesus comes, first he says, peace in the middle of your fear and anxiety and, and your hopelessness. He says, peace. And then the other way you know who he is is he starts showing off his wounds. This is how we identify the risen Christ. The way we know it's really him is through his wounds. And that is a strange 
thing, ladies and gentlemen. Come up with another superhero, another hero of any kind that is known through his wounds. Wonder Woman's known by her golden lasso, right? Jesus is known by his wounds. And I read last night, this made me so happy. Mary maybe knows. Do you know the sign for Jesus in sign language, Mary? Oh, that's a J, but it's also this. Right? Known by his wounds. This is, this is the sign in American Sign Language for Jesus. You know him by his wounds, right? So this is how we know this guy. And I feel like you can't really identify with this until you've experienced your own suffering. I didn't understand it when I was younger. And now I feel like I'm starting to understand it. And one of the ways that I first came to understand it was right after 9-11 when I was involved in starting a support group for people who had been widowed uh, because their, their spouses had died in, in the, the towers. And the way that that support group happened was one woman showed up who had lost her husband. She was 28. She had a two-year-old. And after church, I sat with her, and I went through my list of help I could possibly begin to offer. And I was saying, what do you need? Do, do you need money to pay the rent? Do you need us to bring meals? Do you need counseling? Do you need somebody to watch your daughter? What do you need? And she didn't need any of that. She said, what I need is somebody like me. I need somebody like me. And that's why we went and found people who shared her wounds, who knew what the experience was that she was going through. The way that we know Jesus is when in our own suffering we see him and he knows who we, we know who he is because he understands us. He understands our wounds. And right in the middle of those wounds is where he says, I bring you peace. I think this is also really important because sometimes in the world, the message we have, especially if we're looking at somebody who's supposed to bring us new life, is we, there's a possibility, you could imagine another story with Jesus, and I think this would be the culture of the world that it is, as it is now. Jesus should storm in and say, what's wrong with you? You're a bunch of cowards. Go on out there and do good work and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and stop being a bunch of idiots and get it together. Lose that weight, right? Get your taxes done. Whatever it is, just, you know, like achieve. You're supposed to be better than this. You should have a better job than this. You should be a better friend. Why do you keep messing everything up? Get your act together finally. That could be Jesus. That's not our Jesus. Our Jesus goes deep into the middle of the pain of your life and says, you're going to know me. You're going to know me in your pain because I'm going to breathe peace upon you. And then, even worse, he says, not only am I going to breathe peace upon you, I'm going to send you out. I'm sending you out to breathe your peace upon this broken world. Sometimes in church, this is, a, this is a snag that happens for us. Sometimes church 
thinks that it's the destination <laughs> instead of the departure terminal, right? Have you ever been at church, a church like this? There was a church, one of the churches I've served in the past had, had dirt from the Civil War in a shrine over to the side. Sometimes we think that church, if we really love church, we think that as faithful people we become curators of a museum and that we are a destination like, like the Metropolitan. You, it, once you get here, you've arrived. But that is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, you will come, you will know me in your own pain, I will breathe peace upon you. I sent you out as a militant people, a militant people who are militant about breathing peace on the world, and I send you out. Right? That's what's going on in this story, in the Gospel of John. And then, here we have Thomas. And Thomas is the disciple that wasn't there. And I, I resonate with Thomas. I read a commentary last night about how Thomas is also known as the twin. And maybe the reason he's known as the twin is because he's your twin, and your twin, and your twin, and your twin. He is the, I'll believe it when I see it guy. Right? I can't believe that God is doing a new thing until I, I'll believe it when I see it. When I see it with my own eyes. But here's the thing about when Thomas says, I'll believe it when I see it. When I say, ah, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. What am I, I'm saying that I already see something. It's not that I see nothing, but when I say, yeah, I'll believe that when I see it, what am I saying? I see no there's no possibility. I already see. It's not that I don't see. What I see is that there's no possibility. That you cannot fight City Hall, that the world will always be exactly like it is, and the powerful will always crush the weak, and the best you can do is get by and take care of those people who are immediately around you and protect them as best as you can because you're pretty much on your own in this world. That's what Thomas sees. He already sees something. So when you say, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it, you're already saying that you see something. And then Jesus comes and appears to Thomas and allows Thomas to touch his wounds. And then he's, and this is why we do every second Sunday of Easter, this is always the gospel. Here's why it's always the gospel. Because Jesus says to Thomas, um, you know, you believe because you were able to touch my wounds, but then Jesus kind of peeks over Thomas's shoulder at all of us and said, Bless, he says, blessed are those who believe without seeing. So what Jesus tells us is that our old saying that seeing is believing really isn't true. What is true is that believing is actually seeing. It's believing that's seeing. When you go out into the world expecting to find the risen Christ in it with your militancy about peace and bring, being a people of forgiveness you're going to find him. You're going to find Christ in the world. And another thing is that's really important is believing isn't the same thing as knowing. I know it's April 3rd. 
I know my kids' birthdays. Those are facts. They're facts, and so are rocks. So are all things that are just kind of terminal in themselves. That's sort of a dead thing, right? It's just a fact, period, at the end of it. No dash, <laughs> not even a semicolon. Believing is a relationship. When you believe in somebody, what happens? You're given new life. Has somebody ever believed in you and given you new life? Have you ever believed in somebody and then suddenly possibilities are opened up to you? I think that that's what Jesus is telling us this morning in John's Gospel. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. Because when you do believe, you will see. You'll see all the time. You'll become people of generosity and love and forgiveness and gratitude. And that brings me to this very last piece that the church has used as a baseball bat. I'm sorry, it's a little longer than a sermon than I'd want it to be, but I just can't let this thing go. At the very end, Jesus says, after he's breathed the Holy Spirit upon us, the church, he says, the sins that you retain are retained, and the sins that you forgive are forgiven. And traditionally, I think, at least we're known for it, the church has used that as a way to condemn people who do not agree with them to hell. The priest can withhold absolution from you. And you are sent, you are, you're, you're, where you're going to spend eternity is decided by a group of cranky, mean people. Amen? Yes. That is not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying when he says that the sins of others that you retain will be retained, that is true. Look at all the wars in the world. Look at all the boundaries in the world. Look at all the revenge in the world. And, and the pain in the world is so much about retaining sin. I will get justice. You will get what you deserve. That's what, the news is full of it. Maybe your families are full of it. The city is full of it. There is so little forgiveness in this world. And the sins that we retain are retained. They are right now. And Jesus is saying, yes, if you retain the sins of others, they will be retained. And you will find yourself boxed in by death and illness. But then the opposite is true. Jesus says that the sins you forgive will be forgiven. If you decide to live against a world that retains sins with militant forgiveness and militant peace and militant joy, the whole world changes around you. Which is why I love this church. By myself, I would sit in my locked room and I would be Thomas all day and all night. I'll believe it when I see it. But because we have the body of Christ and because we come here and we proclaim together peace be with you and we look into each other's eyes and we say we believe in Christ. We don't have to see to believe. We believe so that we can see. 
you give me my faith back and I can see the risen Christ in this place every week. And it happens. We go out into the world as a people of resurrection. So brothers and sisters, let us love one another and be at peace with one another and forgive one another because love is of God. And every time we do, Jesus is resurrected from the dead once again. Amen.